Welcome to Our Missouri, a podcast about the people, places, culture, and history of the 114 counties and independent city of St. Louis that comprise the great state of Missouri. Each episode focuses on a topic related to the state, ranging from publications about Missouri's history to current projects undertaken by organizations to preserve and promote local institutions. The Our Missouri podcast is recorded in the J. Christian Bay Rare Books Room at the State Historical Society of Missouri's Columbia Research Center and is generously provided to you by the State Historical Society of Missouri. And now, here's your host, Sean Rost. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or whatever hour you're tuning in to listen to the Our Missouri podcast. My name is Sean Rost, and I'll be your guide as we explore the memories, moments, and misfortunes from Our Missouri. Today, we are joined by Deborah Foster Green, Professor Emerita of History at Lincoln University. Uh, and as a Lincoln graduate myself, I'm excited that Dr. Green is here to talk with us about her research on the African-American press in Missouri because she's one of my mentors and she's someone I really admire uh, personally and scholarly. So thank you, Deborah, for joining us today. and Welcome to the Our Missouri Podcast. Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. Uh, now, how did you come to research African-American newspapers in, in Missouri? Well, it was really serendipitous because of the fact that um, I came to Missouri in 1982 to the University of Missouri to study history. I had planned to get a master's and go back home to Mississippi. And Dr. Arva Strickland, who was then my um, advisor, says there's nothing you can do with a master's in history. You have to get a Ph.D. Okay, so I um, studied under Strickland for about three years. Uh, turned 25, realized I'd never had a job, so I quit my program and went to work. And then 10 years later, I came back to University of Missouri. And in the interim, I had been employed by the Missouri Department of Economic Development. I was a minority business specialist. And so doing that kind of work got me interested in minority business development. Fortunately for me, in the interim, University of Missouri had hired Dr. Robert Weems, whose specialty was African-American business. And so I came back as his student, and I was looking to do a study of the oldest still operating African-American business in Missouri. I thought it would be a bank. It turned out to be the St. Louis Argus newspaper. Uh, But um, I'm from the Deep South, um, southwest Mississippi, and we kind of believe in the supernatural always being present. And um, as a high schooler, I was the editor of my school newspaper. And my first um, idea for college was to major in journalism. Mm-hmm. So here the newspapers came back to me like 20 <laughs> years later, but it was just serendipitous. It mm-hmm. happened, the Argus happened to be the oldest still op- operating African-American business in Missouri. And so, I, and lucky for me, uh, the State uh, Historical Society had the full run of the newspaper from 1915 to the present. So I did like the 20th century from 1915 to 2000, but the newspaper itself, the Argus newspaper itself uh, began in 1912. So, but I had the resources and the interest. Okay. Uh, now, what are some conclusions that you took away from from your project? Some things that you thought about and that you discovered along the way? Well, when you research the newspaper, it's almost trying to, I felt like I was trying to put my arm around a bear. It just kept moving. It was so big because of the fact that when you're studying newspapers, you're studying the full run of a community, their economic life, their political life, their social life, their athletic life. Uh, Some of the things in the Argus that 
uh, couldn't come out in my project 20 years ago was the fact that um, the Mitchells were very big sportsmen. They were into um, um, baseball. They were into basketball. They were into boxing. They sponsored teams. They did all of those types of things uh, because that was their basic interest. And then on top of that, anything that anyone who was anybody in the African-American community in St. Louis or nationally came through and they were either interviewed or had some connection with a newspaper. So you, there were so many possible things to do in, in terms of studying uh, uh, the newspaper. My interest was really what really was studying as a business. And so one of the critiques I got post, you know, after I did it was that, you know, you didn't do it, you know, the correct way. But my my intention was not to study the newspaper as an entity for the community, but to study the newspaper as a business and how um, the Mitchells handled their their business, which is really um, in and of itself interesting because they made it through. Um, the Great Depression, when a lot of uh, businesses did not make it through the uh, Great Depression. The other thing that I um, that I found fascinating about uh, studying the St. Louis Argus, and it is reflective of a lot of African American businesses in the late 19th and early 20th century, was that these people are doing business just like everybody else is doing business. The Argus starts with um, J. E. Mitchell, his brother William, and two other investors, and they all invest money. They buy shares. On several occasions before the 1920s, um, the Argus opened its, you know, um, uh, doors to other investors. Um, they invested in other businesses. They, uh, there were shareholders across the, the um, city who invested in these other businesses. And interestingly enough, the, a couple of the other businesses they invested in were uh, banks. So they uh, did the People's uh, Finance Corporation, which was a bank that didn't make it through um, the, the Depression, and the New Age Federal Savings, um, Federal, no, New Age uh, Savings and Loan that did make it up. But after the 1930s or during the 1930s, it did become a federal savings uh, and loan association. And unfortunately, um, it didn't make it through the 1980s through the uh, the savings and loan crisis. Uh So, but they invested in in other businesses. The thing that that, um, interests me most also is that a lot of these people who are starting businesses, they... Uh, sacrifice a life in their, a lot in their personal lives because many of them either marry late and then don't have any children or they don't marry at all and that is men and and women in order to have these larger lives mm-hmm. so now was there any connection as you're looking at the project with the Mitchells and, and yourself in the thinking of kind of your research where you're a southerner I believe they were from Alabama mm-hmm. Uh, and then they moved to Missouri. Did you see any connections there as you were kind of going through the project? There, they moved from um, the South because of racial segregation. Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, um, the family story for J.E. Mitchell and Maddie, his first wife, mm-hmm. was that J.E., during his um, late teens, had had an altercation with another a white young man in his community. Mm-hmm. And he had left Coosa County, Alabama, and gone to Atlanta. Well, during that, it was in the late um, 18, um, the 
late 1800s, so it's about 1890 or so, um, he... Uh, served in the uh, Spanish-American War. Mm -hmm. And then uh, not only did he serve in the Spanish-American War, but he served in uh, the Philippines. So he comes back with a love for and an interest in the Philippines. And you see that come in the early 20th century popping up in the newspaper. But when he got back, now we're talking about almost a decade later. So when he gets back, he comes to Coosa County to marry his childhood sweetheart, Maddie. And he is arrested by the local sheriff for this old fight. And the sheriff tells him, the only thing I can tell you to do is leave the South. So when I was looking initially 15 years ago at the St. Louis Argus, I, you know, had heard people were moving into St. Louis because of um, the the fair, the World's Fair. Mm -hmm. But when I started looking at the census, and the number of African-Americans who come into St. Louis during that time period, that doesn't bear out. Because between 1900 and 1910, the African-American population of St. Louis only raises 2%. So that doesn't say that people are just, you know, running to St. Louis because of the World's Fair. Mm-hmm. And so 15 years later, that's something I would rewrite, rethink, or do some further research on because... You know, a 2% rise in the population does not say that people are coming to St. Louis because of the the World's Fair. They show up, um, uh, Mitchell and his wife Maddie show up uh, probably about 1903, so maybe a year before um, the fair that they show up. The other thing is is that, and one of the things I want to discuss or get over in in my talk is that... um, Mitchell becomes kind of the last of his kind. Um, there are six newspapers that I want to talk about in my talk. And I'm looking at the men who, and unfortunately they are, uh, well, maybe not unfortunately, but they are men mm-hmm. in that first generation. Um, initially, you're going to find people like Mitchell who are not educated. They are not men of letters, but they go into the, the business because there's an opportunity. But the business is not only a business, it's an opportunity to influence the community. Mm -hmm. So they understand that and they do not take that for granted. By the time we get to the 1920s, when we see the American um, newspaper, the St. Louis American newspaper, that business is started by a group of educated men. All of them have professions. Most of them are doctors and lawyers. And as a matter of fact, the first uh, publisher um, is um, mm, uh, Nathaniel B. Benjamin, uh, Nathan Benjamin Young Jr., okay? Mm-hmm. And he is a young attorney. As a matter of fact, he's a Yale-educated attorney uh, from Alabama as well. Um, his father, who was the president of Lincoln University, Nathan B. Young Sr., um, asked him to come. You know, he's in Um, Alabama, he's trying cases. It's dangerous in the early 20th century Mm -hmm. uh, to be doing that in the South. And so he comes to St. Louis because he says there are a group of, you know, young professional men and they are, you know, starting a newspaper. And they're really starting a newspaper to be an alternative voice to the Argus because by the early um, 1920s, the Argus is the only black newspaper. Uh, and so when they come in, it's a conglomerate of guys who've put their money, invested their money into uh, the business, and they choose one of their own, young, 
to be um, the publisher of the business. They also choose a um, another uh, Lincoln University graduate by the name of um, uh, Nathaniel uh, Sweets. And after maybe two or three years, Sweets owns the business. But they choose him as the businessman and the ad solicitor. And he's really good at it. And he is really interested in the business of the newspaper. Um, Young, of course, you know, he's invested his time in being a lawyer and he's interested in in doing uh, lawyering. He eventually becomes a uh, judge of some significance in um, St. Louis. But um, the businesses of the newspaper uh, became very, very fascinating um, to me. Mm-hmm. So, You mentioned the American, which was started in... 28? 1928. And then the Argus. Uh, what are the other four newspapers that you're going to focus in on? Well, I'm looking at the Argus and um, the American and St. Louis. I'm going to look at, um, I'm going to talk about the Call and um, the Kansas City Sun. Uh, the Kansas City Sun is a late 19th um, century newspaper started by a man very much similar to um, J.E. Mitchell with the Argus. You know, not a man of letters, but a man who of, of influence in his, his community. And then I'm going to look at two mid-Missouri uh, newspapers. One was the Professional World that was published in Columbia from uh, 1901 to about 1903 uh, by a Lincoln University graduate. Uh, and then another one is called the Western Mes- Messenger. And the Western Messenger is the uh, newspaper for the black or uh, what you see in the, in that newspaper for the colored Baptists. I'm looking at that one simply because of the fact that um, it had the largest um, circulation of, um, of uh, readers in the early uh, 20th century. So, and I'm getting all this information from a historian by the name of George Everett uh, Slavin, who graduated from University of Missouri, and in the late 1960s, he did his um, dissertation on the African American press in Missouri. Oh. So it's from him we find out that in the state of Missouri, between um, about 1870 to 1960, 1968, when he's finishing up his project, about 60. Uh, African-American newspapers are established. Now, that doesn't count, you know, in the 60s, you're going to have a lot of underground newspapers, black power newspapers, mm-hmm. you know, leaflets or um, newsletters. Doesn't count any of uh, of those. And then um, Dr. Julius Thompson, who also uh, was uh, here with the uh, history faculty um, at the University of Missouri, um, did his dissertation on the Jackson Advocate. And so he had a big voice in the history of African-American press and African-American journalism. And from his work, we find that uh, between the late, well, probably starting with the first uh, documented African-American newspaper, the um, Freedom's Journal with Ruskin and Cornish in 1827, He's counting probably by the early 1970s, mid-1970s, about 2,000 African-American newspapers are founded in the United States. So what I'm looking at also is that they have kind of a cycle. That first cycle is looking at abolition and getting rid of slavery. The second cycle, which I'm interested in, is how they impact racial uplift. 
And I'm looking at that because another University of Missouri graduate, um, Dr. Um, Lawrence O. Christensen, um, did some work on St. Louis. He was interested in really the black community and the black community in politics. But he does do a kind of political uh, biographical sketch of um, John Wesley Wheeler, who was the uh, who became the publisher of the St. Louis Palladium. And so uh, in, in a 1974 or so article that he publishes in the Missouri uh, Historical Review, he it, it, at the very end of the article, he says, you know, he's very conservative. Uh, he kind of followed Booker T. Washington's philosophy, and he had an opinion on what really was um, public de- decorum in um, the African-American community. Be clean. Don't be noisy, you know, have a job, you know, all of those types of things. Um, I would argue that that's really not um, exclusively Washingtonian. Um, a number of uh, African-American women, um, Anna Julia Cooper um, uh, and others are saying the exact same thing. As a matter of fact, uh, I just read... Um, uh, Mary Trish Terrell's biography and um, in her biography and then in a critique of uh, Terrell. And I can't remember the name of the book, but I think it's Deborah, um, Deborah Gray White, uh, who talks about the fact that uh, one of her speeches is a challenge to her community as to, you know, you know, bringing the black uh, community, the masses of African Americans up to the level, you know, of what um, middle class and educated blacks were. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's that's the challenge that everyone is given. And so I'm looking at how the newspaper plays its role in in that, because as I looked at the Argus, one of the things that interests me was that Mitchell um, hammered this whole idea of creating businesses and economic empowerment. This whole idea of if you create a business, then you can employ African-Americans and they won't have to beg for jobs from the white community. They won't have to be the first people, you know, fired from jobs in the white community, but you have to create businesses. And if we're going to create businesses, you have to patronize, you know, those businesses in order for those businesses to make it beyond the first generation, which is the big issue for African-American businesses, many of them did not outlive their owners. So the Argus does and uh, the call does, but uh, the Kansas City Sun does not. Um, I guess the Palladium does because because Wheeler is not the first publisher of the, the Palladium. He takes over the Palladium. We really don't know when the Palladium started, but um, he's not the first publisher of it. He, he have, begins an association, and then eventually he is the publisher. Before we return to our conversation, let's take a step back in time with Bob Pretty to an event from this week in history in the Missouri Minute. I'm Bob Pretty with this Missouri Minute about a Civil War fight for control of the Mississippi River. Cape Girardeau was an important military goal in the Civil War for both sides because it was a major communications point and an important supply depot. The city became a battleground in 1863 when Confederate General John Marmaduke, later a governor of Missouri, moved into the state to disrupt federal fortifications and find recruits. Cape Girardeau was his main target, important because it was helping supply Grant's siege at Vicksburg. 
But Union General John McNeil smelled the trap that Marmaduke laid for him in the attacks at nearby Bloomfield, and instead of retreating to the west, he went back to Cape Girardeau, where he had four defensive forts. He might still have suffered heavy losses if Confederate messengers to Joseph O. Shelby and Marmaduke had not been captured before they could tell their commanders what was up. Marmaduke gave McNeil 30 minutes on April 26, 1863, to surrender. McNeil refused, then counterattacked, and by 2 o'clock that afternoon, more Federal troops were headed to Cape Girardeau on the river, the advantage was lost, and the Confederacy again had to pull back into Arkansas. I'm Bob Pretty for the Center for Missouri Studies. Now, when we think about the African-American press uh, in the early 20th century, as you're talking about, when a lot of these are being founded, this is a point when white newspapers aren't publishing information about the African-American community. Uh, do you think it was important then for these newspapers to not only promote businesses, promote uh, interests, but also to kind of give voice to a community uh, of kind of uh, this up uplift idea? Well, one of the things that um, Cornish and Ruskin say in Freedom's Journal is that they're publishing Freedom's Journal in 1827 mm -hmm. uh, to... Um, give voice to a community that hadn't had a voice mm -hmm. or to give an alternative voice to a community that is uh, at their, at they're in New York. So the New York daily world is writing, you know, very mm -hmm. derogatory things about, you know, colored people at mm -hmm. that time. And so they want to give the alternative, you know, these are the things that the black community is doing. These are the things that the black community is interested in. But, what I'm finding is the assumption that white newspapers are not writing about black people um, is not totally true. They're, some of the things are negative, but, for example, in the Western Messenger, there are no copies of the Western Messenger, mm -hmm. but all the information I found out from the Western Messenger came from the, the Word. And that was the White Baptist okay. newspaper. Mm -hmm. And they're only talking about the um, uh, Reverend um, Goings, John Goings. And Reverend John Goings becomes the person that they've hired to um, make congregations among the colored people. Okay. They're, the White Baptists are looking at this as an opportunity to you know, reach the unchurched. So if we go out and we have a black man to go out and make these congregations, they will choose the Baptist faith rather than some other faith. Okay. So in the word, they're writing about the activities of Reverend Goings. Um, sometimes they write positively, sometimes they write not so positively about whether, you know, what they're doing. One of the articles I came across was, you know, how much money that Reverend Goins was making. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're donating this amount uh to him and then he has this job and then he has the Reverend Goins was making like hundred and fifty dollars a month. Um, in the early 20th. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I don't know how much that was, but I'm like, he's really making bank here. <laughs> bank here. But when he died, mm -hmm. there is a very um, respectful uh, obituary for him in the word because of his long period of um, work. Mm -hmm. um, the interesting thing about it also is that the Western Messenger um, under Reverend Goins, um, did a political um, uh, announcement that urged 
the readers to vote for a particular party against another party. And in the word, it says that was a that was a blunder. You know, we're donating all this money to you and Mm. you're saying that, you know, it would be, you know, catastrophic if this other party whom we probably support (laughs) wins. Okay, Mm. so shortly thereafter. The uh, Western Messenger moved from Jefferson City to St. Louis, and Reverend Goins was no longer the <laughs> the editor of the newspaper. So, but without the word, I would not have been able to find anything out about Reverend Goins or um, the Western Messenger. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, because I was looking at those newspapers. You got St. Louis and Kansas City covered in Central Missouri. Do you know of any other smaller communities that would have had? African-American newspapers, or at least some form of them? Well, there is a jewel of a resource, and it's called the uh, Negro Yearbook. And in the Negro Yearbook, it lists all of the associations that African-Americans have created. So you have the teachers, the preachers, the uh, business leagues, the um, undertakers, funeral directors. So you you have all of those. Um, Most of the fraternal uh, organizations like the Eastern Star and the Masons, but you also have a list of the newspapers throughout most of the states. And so in the state of Missouri, we had for, you know, a short period of time, one in St. Joe, one in Macon, Missouri, one in uh, Hannibal, um, I think that is about it. Macon, because of the fact that there was a Western University, which was noted for uh, training um, African-American uh, preachers, and it moves to Kansas City, okay. but uh, would not have known that either. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, it gets a pulse on, yeah, yeah. The, the yearbook gets a pulse on, on all these operations and businesses. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. really fascinating. I think the St. Joe one was called the protest or national protest, I think it was called. I, I, I thought it was the Inquirer, but I'm not sure if it uh, is or not. I have it okay. somewhere in there okay. or the advocate or something like okay. that. For those people who are coming to your talk uh, on April 30th, what do you hope that they take away from everything that they'll learn when they're there? Well, I, I really would like to focus my talk when I first looked at this, my talk on the actual individual men uh, who created these businesses. Um, the interesting thing to me is that in the second generation, for say, for example, with a call, when um, Chester Franklin dies, the call is in the hands of women. Okay. Mm-hmm. When um, uh, Cruz died, uh, the Kansas City um, son is in the hands of his editor, who is a woman. Uh, when Mitchell dies, then his sister-in-law, um, Nanny uh, Mitchell Turner, is really the the with her son is really the leader of these newspapers. But what I want to do is look at um, the individual people who. Um, are involved in who start these newspapers. I've done a lot of research in, and I know there's criticisms of um, the census, but the census also provides, if you look really, really closely, a a lot of information. Say, for example, the young man who starts the Columbia professional world. Well, he went to Lincoln University, but he was also from uh, New Bloomfield, Missouri. His dad was a farmer, and you find all that out in the, the census. So 
why would this young man who really comes from very you know, humble beginnings, you know, get the opportunity, go to Lincoln University. He, he actually ends up on the, um, the first board of curators for Lincoln mm. University. When it becomes a university and they no longer have a board of regents, um, he is uh, on the board of curators. And there must not have been a rule again, you know, about uh, being all from the same party because everybody <laughs> on that first board of curators is a Republican, every one of them. So, so that would have been, yeah, that would have been the uh, the Hyde, yeah, Baker years yeah. of, of, the, of exactly. yeah, the strong Republican so, support, yeah. I, I, I'm going to be looking at them as, you know, as the, the, the individuals who, who start these these uh, businesses. Because the press, I mean, um, is really a researched, um, the African-American press is a highly researched um, institution. Uh, but the people who, who start it, and for whatever reason they started, however, you know, they were able to continue it. Um, the challenges they, that they meet, uh, if we look at um, what's left now, we have um, the St. Louis Sentinel, which was started in 1968 by Howard, Howard B. Woods. Uh, Woods had been with the Argus before he went to Washington. Um, and so it's a still operating newspaper, but the, the one that really faced the 1980s when so much of, of written journalism changed was the American. And they faced it by accepting the, um, the, the new skills and tenets of journalism in the 1980s. And that was the Gannett model. Lots of color, and so the current publisher said when when I took and and he and he's a a a medical person he's a dentist he said when I took over I started listening to those people who were in the field and those people who were in the field said these are the things you have to do you have to have a web presence you have to no longer charge for the paper you have to you basically have to give it away and so they have the St. Louis American has a huge web presence it has an online newspaper it gives they claim that they're giving away like 77,000 copies every week of that newspaper but they're they've survived into the 21st century i can't determine whether or not the call is still operating because Lucille Bluford you know, passed away in 2003. I can't uh, determine whether or not the um, Argus is still operating because um, Dr. Eugene Mitchell, uh, who was its publisher, passed away shortly. Um, well, he passed away sometime in the First decade of the the twenty first century, but he had sold the newspaper somewhere around two thousand three, you know, or oh, as well. Um, don't quote me on those dates because I'm not, you know, specifically sure. Mm. But what I'm saying is, is that those newspapers went into different hands, mm. but they went into different hands at a time period when uh, print journalism is under tremendous change to people who probably don't didn't have or don't have the skills or the money to uh, run a newspaper in the way that the American has has been able to run their newspaper so I, I want to do the uh, the personal side because that that's of interest to me you know it is a pretty you know the people are pretty interesting and I've, pr I've found out some really interesting things about them uh, in looking at um, 
this particular study. So. Okay. Well, we hope to have a packed house on April 30th for your presentation, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. As always, I am your host, Sean Rost. The show's producer is Brian Austin. The opening and concluding credits are narrated by Kevin Walsh. If you're interested in more of the people, places, culture, and history around our Missouri, check out the following upcoming events. If you're in the mood for a little bluegrass music to kick off your summer, Raw is the place to be on May 19th for the Ozark Picking Time. This afternoon, Music and Memories features Jimmy Allison and Midnight Flight, Jerry Rosa and the Rosa Stringworks Band, and Meredith Sisko and Accomplices. This event is free and open to the public, though registration is appreciated. While you're there, be sure to check in with staff from the State Historical Society of Missouri to learn how the Historical Society is preserving the state's rich musical history. National History Day in Missouri is looking for educators, historians, writers, filmmakers, museum staff, and community members to join them at this year's state contest to judge student projects. State contests will be held on April 27, 2019 at the University of Missouri in Columbia. To thank you for your essential participation in National History Day in Missouri 2019, the State Historical Society of Missouri will provide a light breakfast and lunch, plus a travel stipend of up to $50 for judges whose round-trip mileage exceeds 75 miles. National History Day in Missouri is a unique opportunity for middle and high school-aged students to explore the past in a creative, hands-on way by producing a documentary, exhibit, paper performance, or website on a topic of their choosing. To learn more about National History Day in Missouri, including judge orientation and how to start a program at your own school, please visit shsmo.org nhdmo. On April 30th, join Deborah Foster Green, Professor Emeritus of History from Lincoln University, for her presentation entitled To Educate and Elevate the African American Press in Missouri. Part of the African American Experience in Missouri Lecture Series, this presentation will be held at the Memorial Union's Stotler Lounge on the University of Missouri's campus and sponsored by the Missouri Humanities Council, the University of Missouri's Division of Inclusion, Diversity, and Equity, and the State Historical Society of Missouri. If you are planning to attend the 2019 Family History Conference in St. Charles on May 8th through the 11th, be sure to visit the State Historical Society of Missouri's exhibit booth to learn more about how to preserve genealogy and local history. Finally, coming up this summer, the Our Missouri Podcast will launch a four-part series celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 mission and moon landing in an effort to document the history of the moon landing and grow the Historical Society's oral history archive. We will be collecting stories from listeners who are interested in speaking about their memories of this historic event. These memories of the moon landing conversations will be preserved in the Missouri Innovation and Exploration Oral History Project with some of the stories being featured on the podcast. If you're interested in contributing your story, please contact us by email at rmissouri@shsmo.org. Thank you for listening to the Our Missouri Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, including past and future episodes, information about guests, and upcoming events, please visit our website at shsmo.org slash our dash Missouri.